Our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. When Bam began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Let us pray together. So now, Father, we come to study your word because we want to know you. We want to understand who is this God that we worship. We want to know you that we may become more like you. That we may have your heart and will and desires. That we may understand your attitude towards sin. That we too may join you in it. And so I pray, dear Father, we pray that through the ministry of your spirit, you would speak to us through your word. We do not come here to be entertained or to hear from a man, but we come to hear from the one true God that we may know him, that we may obey him, and that we may love him well. So help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1883, after an earthquake dislodged a massive rock and ice from a mountain in eastern Turkey, British surveyors reported seeing a gigantic wooden structure on Mount Ararat. In the early 20th century, Russian soldiers sent by the Tsar found remains of what they considered to be a massive ship upon this mountain in which they took very grainy photos. It was during World War II that American aviators who often flew over Mount Ararat, according to the United States paper Stars and Stripes, in 1943, two pilots saw and photographed something they believed to be Noah's Ark. In 1948, the Associated Press reported, quote, the petrified remains of an object which peasants insist resembles a ship has been found high up on Mount Ararat, apparently hidden for centuries It came to light last summer when unusually warm weather melted away an ancient mantle of ice and snow. 
1955, French industrialist saw what he considered to be a dark form of a ship under an ice camp in 1960. Turkish airmen took a photo of this massive in which Life magazine would send an expedition. It would turn out to be a rock formation. In 1974, Senator Frank Moss of Utah from the floor of the Senate presented satellite photographs of what he considered to be Noah's Ark. So what if they found it? What if someone finally conclusively hiked up Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey or thereabouts and found it? Now there's Noah's Ark on a big massive ship on top of a mountain. Would it matter? And what I mean by that, would it, would it increase the love for Jesus? Would the kingdom grow? Would people repent and bow their knee to him? No, I'm not so sure. In fact, we have seen throughout scripture times in which God very unequivocally displays his power and might so it is in, indisputable, undeniable that he exists to people around him. I think, for instance, the time in which he redeemed his people from, from Egypt and he would send these plagues and he would part a sea and he would float manna down from heaven and he would lead them by a pillar of fire and day, a pillar of smoke and day and a pillar of fire at night. And just evidence after evidence after evidence that God exists and he's powerful and still his very people refuse to trust him. Or think of the days of Jesus, for instance, when he would cure the blind and heal the lame and cleanse the leper and walk on water and calm the storm and feed the thousands and even raise the dead. And they crucified him. I'm not sure it would matter whether we found the ark or not. But what I do appreciate is the motivation behind it, perhaps, is that Christianity is a historical faith. That this, this faith that you and I share is not based upon myth or children's fables or even a philosopher's teaching, but it's based upon events that occurred in history. Events that have uncalculating significance, such as the flood. And so I believe, as we shall learn in the coming weeks, as we work our way through the next chapters of Genesis, that there was a worldwide flood. I believe this account to be true. We, we, as you know, in our study of Genesis, have been exploring the, the stage upon which all of humanity lives out its life. And we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God is good and God is powerful. And he created a world full of abundance and provision. And there he put our parents upon this world. And then in Genesis chapter 3, our parents chose not to love God, but rather to love sin and rebellion and join the devil in his fight against God, plunging all of humanity into sin. We see sin begin to mature in Genesis chapter 4 when the next generation Cain rises up and murders his brother Abel and now we saw last week and generation after generation after generation passes and sin continues to grow and multiply and every time God encounters sin in our study of Genesis you see two things don't you you see God one come with judgment and yet judgment is always tempered with grace it was with Adam and Eve it was with Cain We shall see so again this morning as we look at 
what can be called the third main event in the book of Genesis. We have creation, we have the fall, and now we have the flood. And so we're going to consider this, this flood in the coming weeks as we work our way through Genesis 6 and 7 and, and 8 and even chapter 9 as well. And when we do, what we're going to do, uh, be able to do is kind of, uh, if you will, through the lens of Scripture, witness what happened upon that earth. We're going to come aboard Noah's ark and experience through God's Word and His Spirit what it must have been like and understand what God did and, and why He did it. And so we'll see the world in the midst of this judgment. But today, we get to do something unique. Today, we're not going to see the world from Noah's perspective. Today, we're going to see the world from God's perspective. It's as if in these verses, he invites us to heaven and says, I want you to look down and I want you to see what I see. And so we shall do so this morning. We shall see humanity's sins. And then as the scripture lays out for us, we will see God responds to those sin. And God's response is always, always robust. It's always profound. As you shall see, there's at least four ways in which God responds to humanity's sin. But let's begin by considering the sin that was occurring here. We see in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And so you see that there, the population grows as God has commanded for it to grow. Adam and Eve had kids and their kids have kids. And if you live 900 years, you can have a lot of kids. And so there are a lot of kids and they're everywhere and humanity is just spreading all over the place because God is good and God blesses and God loves children and God blesses families that they can have children. And so kids and people and population grows everywhere. But you know what they bring with them? Sin. Rebellion. And so not only does the population go, but sin grows as well. We've seen it grow bigger and bigger. We saw it in Adam and Eve, and then we saw it in Cain, and then we saw it in this very despicable individual, Lamech. And today we see not just to sin in individuals, but God kind of t- steps back and looks at the sin across the whole world and just summarizes what's taking place upon this world in which he made. And so let's consider it. You notice verse 2, the scripture says, The Son of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Skip verse 3. We'll come back to that later on. Verse 4 tells us, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore them, bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Verse 2 and verse 4 are kind of weird to me. Um, these are strange passages, somewhat difficult to understand. We really have three groups that we have to identify. We have sons of God, we have daughters of men, and then we have these characters called the Nephilim. And so um, there's been a lot of debate as to who these guys are. One of the most ancient interpretations as to who the sons of God are is that they're fallen angels. And so these fallen angels, perhaps through demonic possession, are possessing men and they're marrying women and they're having children together. And, and so you have this, this terrible, um, unnatural event taking place. People argue for this uh, interpretation because sons of gods is sometimes a term given to angels. For instance, Scripture tells us the sons of God appeared at creation. The sons of God um, appeared before God himself. And so that their argument is that these demons, if you will, are lusting after these women. We do know that Jude and Peter both say that there are some fallen angels who left their proper dwelling place and went after unnatural desires. And these particular demons, God has placed in chains awaiting for judgment. They do not have enjoy the freedom that perhaps other fallen angels do in these days. 
And we also know from the Gospels that demons seem to crave bodies. And so this is a very ancient interpretation. I'm afraid it's not one that I hold. Um, I don't believe what he's referring to here is these sons of gods being these, these demons or these demon-possessed individuals. Although I think that's a, a valid interpretation. I'm not sure it's the one that, that Scripture is giving us. I think, to be honest, sons of God is a, will be a, an odd way to describe a demon. Uh, I think that'd be very confusing. Moreover, we're going to see in a moment that God, when he judges the world, isn't upset with demons, but he's upset with us. The flood is to, to get, to, to punish us, not these demons. And so I don't think it really fits. The punishment doesn't fit the crime if these are demonic creatures. Moreover, Jesus in Matthew 24 would say, for as, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Um, by the way, you notice Jesus believes in Noah. So just want to uh, throw that out there. I know you went to college and you told Noah doesn't exist. It's a fable. It's a myth. Um, Jesus says it's true. And so uh, you know who's smarter than your college professor? It's Jesus. And so I'm always going with Jesus. Just to let you know in future sermons, I'm going to side with him. Um, And he says Noah existed. And he goes on and says, For as in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And so he doesn't describe this weird, bizarre, demonic marriages. He just says they were going through life and they were marrying and, and giving in marriage. So I don't believe what we have is, is this, is a, you know, um, Freddy Krueger's running around marrying people or whatever's going on. I don't, I don't think it's really that strange. To be honest, I think the sons of God are just the godly people. They're just the Christians of that day, if I could use that term. Um, in fact, we've, we've already, God's already set up for us that there's really kind of two, two lineages in the book of Genesis. You notice that? Remember last week we looked at the lineage of Cain and the, and the lineage of Seth. And Seth's lineage begins to call upon the name of the Lord. Remember that? And then in Genesis 3, God even in speaking to the serpent says to the serpent, I'm going to drive a wedge. I'm going to place enmity between your offspring, the, referring to the devil, and your offspring, referring to Eve, to the offspring of the woman. So God's already set up for us this idea that there's these, these two separate tracks of humanity, those who love God and those who do not love God. And I think what's taking place here is that those men who love God are marrying those women who, who don't love God. Verse 2 tells us why. You see that? They were attractive. <laughs> and so you have these, these godly men who are marrying these women who hate Jesus, but they're hot. They're attractive. They say, oh, I'm going to marry her. I, I don't care if she hates Jesus. That's who I'm going for. And so all these Christian guys are, are marrying um, strippers or hooters, waitresses or whatever. I don't know how to put it, or sorority girls or, you know, uh, prostitutes. And it says, I don't matter if they don't love God. They're attractive. They're, I, I find them attractive, and therefore I'm going, I'm going to marry them. I don't care if, if they hate Jesus and all. This is very sad, isn't it? It's a sad day. They're marrying, according to verse 2, whoever they chose. Now, I want to be very clear that this is forbidden activity. God does not allow this intermarriage. And when we say intermarriage, we're not referring to race at all. Such ideas that we can't marry in between race is totally foreign to Scripture. In fact, you see a number of intermarriages between races in Scripture. Moses, for example, marries a black woman. What we have here is that God says you can't marry outside the faith. We see this in the law. We see this in the book of Ezra. We see this in the book of Malachi. You get to 1 Corinthians 7 and God says, marry whoever you want as long as they love Jesus. That's it. And yet these guys are saying, no, we don't really care about that. We care if they're attractive. 
And so they're going after these girls. That's not the only thing that's taking place. You see, in verse 4, you have these Nephilim were on the earth. And people say, well, well, who are these Nephilim? Some people want to say, well, the Nephilim are the offspring between the demon people and the the human people. But if you read closely, you can't have that interpretation because verse 4 says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men. So he says, listen, these Nephilim existed before this intermarriage was taking place. They were there. And then they were also there after that time when this intermarriage started happening. And so the Nephilim, uh, uh, well, he tells us here at the end of verse 4, these were mighty men of old who were men of renown. So I'm not sure what to say other than that, that these are just men who are seeking after their own name. They're mighty men. They're, they're strong men. They're proudful men. They're violent men, perhaps. Some people think they're giants. We do know in Numbers 13, when the spies go into the promised land, they see what they describe as Nephilim. And they say, we were like grasshoppers before us. And we kind of see this theme of scripture, um, that there's these giants who oppose God. You think of Goliath or the Anakites or a man named Og, king of Basham, whose bed was 13 feet long and 9 feet wide. And so perhaps they're giants, I don't know. Maybe a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's running around, and they're just full of pride and arrogance, a bunch of Mike Tysons or whatever, and they just are living for themselves and living for their own name, and they living for their own renown, the Scripture tells us. And so you have all this going on, and then we get to verse 5, and God kind of summarizes what he sees, and perhaps it gives us the most unfortunate verse in Scripture. The Bible tells us the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was a day in which God created the earth and he looked around. Remember what he said? It is good. It is very good. And we move just six chapters in scripture and he looks around and he says, it's evil. It's only evil. It's only evil all the time. Continually, this is what is taking place. This is Scripture's description of the human condition. This is not just pertain to people in this world, but it pertains to people in, the, in the, this world in this time, but to the world in which we live. You, we'll get to uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 22. You see that very clearly. Even after the flood, we're all still evil. And so God looks and says, they're, they're just evil. The theologians have given a term to this. They call it total depravity. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's often misunderstood. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as evil as we can be or that we're incapable of doing good. You know, non-Christians do good things. Husbands love their wives and are honest and sacrifice and, and pay the, their taxes and do nice things, are good neighbors. What it means is that we are totally depraved in the sense that every part of us is corrupted by sin. There's not a part of us that is free from that corrupting influence of sin. It's as if you had a glass of water and you took just a drop of, of deadly bacteria and you dropped it in that water. Just one drop. You wouldn't drink that water. That bacteria has contaminated that entire glass. Now, you can make that glass more contaminated by putting a lot more of this bacteria in, but just one drop spoils the whole cup. And God looks and says, these people are spoiled. They're made by me. They're made to follow me. They're made to love me. And all they do is love themselves and rule their own life. And he, he sees it. He looks down from heaven and he just sees it. I think often we don't see sin. We're, we're blind to it. We, we can't recognize it even when it's in front of us. I remember a number of years ago, there was a prominent Christian um, who was a very public figure on the news all the time and continues to be so. 
And uh, he's a pastor, and he confessed to having a, an extramarital affair and having a child out of wedlock. And, and he, to his credit, asked for forgiveness. And I, I believe that should be extended to him. Um, but what, what I find interesting is that when interviewed about this, this man's conduct, the, the people after people on the street said, well, it just shows he's only human. Almost as if it's, it's a compliment. And you see what they're saying, to be human means to betray your wife, have uh, relationships out of wedlock, and to give birth to an illegitimate child. That's what it means to be human. See, when sin is just right in front of our face, we can't even see it. We're blind to it. We've been so corrupt. But, but God is not blind, is he? God sees it. He looks on the earth and sees it. In fact, for him, it's not hard to see. In fact, it doesn't stay in our hearts. You notice verse 11, a verse we'll consider next week, God willing. But you see here, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. You see that again in verse 13, the world is violent. This is the world in which God is looking at. We are taught in our day this idea of evolution, that, that each generation, um, things get better and we keep progressing and we keep moving forward and we keep, we keep advancing. I don't know. I'm not buying it. I feel like we're going the other way. You know, they say we come from animals. That's not true. We just act like animals. And therefore, it seems like we come from them. And God says, I'm going to make you and you're going to be like me. You're going to be my image bearers. You're going to be my likeness upon this world. And you're going to go around and you're going to reflect who I am to other image bearers. And this is this is the great honor I've extended to you. And all they, all they want to do is run around filled with pride and lust and violence. God has given them 2,000 years at least. And, and he just says, are you going to fix this? Are you going to deal with this? Are you going to overcome this? Are, are you going to repent? And he looks and says, no progress. The world is just full of sin. It's just full of it. I see sin everywhere I look. And so we almost expect God at this point to say, just forget it. I'm just done. I've given you 2,000. I'm, I'm done. It's over. I'm done. Away with you. We, we almost expect him to begin to scream and yell and rant and rave, saying, what have you done to my world? But amazingly, Scripture tells us that is not the God we worship. So you see God respond, and he responds first with sadness. Sadness. Look at verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We'll see in verse 7, God's going to judge sin. He will. And he will do so in great severity. He will pour out his wrath upon this earth. But before we look at his judgment, I want you to understand that God doesn't delight in judgment. He doesn't rejoice in wrath. He would speak through the prophet Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way. Turn back, he says, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? He loves repentance. He loves to give grace. He does not rejoice in justice and wrath the way he does in grace. In fact, you see, verse 6 tells us that it grieved him to his heart. And so, friend, you need to see this because you need to understand who God is. He's not a force. He's not some distant creator who spun the world into existence and and went a, a billion light years away, not so concerned. He looks upon the earth and he sees sin. And what does he feel but grief? Grief in his heart. That's who God is. 
Scripture wants us to understand what God feels about rebellion and sin. He's brokenhearted. And why? Well, because he loves us. I see, grief is a, is a love word. You, you don't grieve over people's sin that you don't love. But he loves his creation. And he's grieved over their rebellion. I think this is incredibly important for us to understand because I've surveyed the other religions in this world and no one has a God like this. There is no God like this. A God who looks upon his creation's rebellion and rather than immediately striking them down, is brokenhearted. In fact, we see the magnitude of his grief earlier in verse 6 when he says, I'm sorry that I have made man on the earth. Can you imagine saying that to one of your children? I love you, but I'm sorry that you were born. I wish, I wish you were never born. I wish you didn't exist. Can you imagine what you, what you would have to feel for those words to come out of your mouth that you say, you know, I'm your dad. I, I love you. You'll always be my son, but your entire existence, you have just brought harm and pain and difficulty. You're a murderer. You're a thief and you've ruined every life you touched. And it probably would be better if you never existed at all. God said, I'm sorry I made them. All they do is run around and kill each other. All they do around, go around is destroy each other. I think this is perhaps some of the most troubling words in Scripture. Yet it's just not word for them. It's a word for us. You know how God feels about your sin? Grief. Sadness. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, he is still grieved by sin. In fact, you read the scripture and you're going to see that the Bible is going to present sin in very graphic and emotive ways. It's going to talk about a scorned father or an abandoned wife or husband. It's going to talk about it in terms of adultery and rebellion and abandonment. And so do not think that God is up in heaven just with a checkboard, you know, a a clipboard and, and you've got your name on top and he's thinking, okay, sin, sin. Let's see, it's 1130. Okay, there's another sin. And then later on, oh, that's a big one. I'm going to put a star by that. And it just sin, 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 sin. No, he's not some divine accountant just counting up your sin to talk to you about it one day. He is your God who loves you and he is grieved by your sin. Jesus rides up to Jerusalem and his heart breaks and he begins to weep because they would not repent. And sometimes I feel the only person that's troubled about my sin and your sin is God. Because when we sin, we like to shift the blame or deny that we did it or make excuses for it or even boast in it. And it seems like the only one who cares about our sin is God himself. And I think we would do well to get a little bit of God's heart in us. That we would not just pat our sin on the head and say, it's okay, I got grace. I have grace. What do I have to worry about? Well, I'll tell you what you have to worry about. You have to worry about breaking the heart of a God who loves you more than you could imagine. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, Christian, but do you not want to bring pleasure to God? Do you understand what sin does? God cares about your life more than you can imagine. He longs for you to live a life of joyful obedience and passionate submission for your eternal good and gain because he loves you. He's grieved. He's pained by it. And he will respond to it as we see secondly with judgment. Verse 7 tells us, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. 
So he will be moved by sin to come in judgment. He will, as Scripture tells us, destroy every living thing upon the face of the earth, except those, we'll learn later, who survive through the ark. God now for 1,600 years, 2,000, has waited generation after generation. He's given them examples like Enoch, and sin just grows worse and worse. And so he says, I'm just going to blot out man from the earth. The picture for me is like wiping a dish clean is what God is going to do. He will use similar language in Second Kings saying, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You'll notice not only will he blot out man, but he'll blot out every animal upon the earth. The scripture for some reason always ties the welfare of the earth to our obedience or our sinfulness. We see that immediately in Genesis 3. We see that throughout scripture. In fact, we get to Romans 8 and the Bible will tell you that creation, which is in some subject to bondage and decay, waits for your redemption in order that it too may be freed from its bondage, from its slavery. And so there is this link for some reason, perhaps as the apex of creation, creation goes as we go. And so God is going to give justice, judgment. Everyone will die. Now just be clear, up to this point, everyone already is dying. We saw this very clearly in Genesis 5, remember that? And he died. And he died. And he died. And so God, in in saying, I'm going to blot out everyone, is not saying, okay, there's a new type of judgment because everyone's already dying because of sin. What he's saying, I'm just going to move it all up on one day. We're all not going to die from a natural death. I'm going to execute everyone at the same time. And so this is his judgment. This is our God. I want you to understand this because today if you turn on television and you hear men from behind pulpits, they will not tell you this is our God. Many churches will not tell you this is our God. We'll say, well, God is no longer like that, friends. It's not true. This is who God is. He will judge sin. He does not wink at sin. He does not pat you on the head and say, it's no big deal. He does not say, well, listen, no one's perfect. He does not say, oh, you're only being human. God is grieved by sin. He is moved by sin because of his holiness to execute good judgment. He did it through a flood and he will do it when Christ returns. The scripture tells us according to Revelation chapter 6, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? God will judge them. Christ is returning. And he is coming upon a stallion with a robe dipped in blood, with a sword protruding from his mouth, and an army at his back to make war on his enemies. He will judge sin. But that is not all God will do in response to sin. We see also, as God throughout this book of Genesis so far has shown us, he will always temper judgment with salvation, with grace. And so we see the third response that God has to humanity's sin is salvation. We see it here in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I think we have to be careful here. Why, why Noah? Why, why does God spare Noah? And I think quite often we answer this, well, Noah was a righteous man. And so God looked around the world, and everybody's evil, but there's this guy over here, Noah, who seems to have his act together. And so God's, I'm going to spare that guy. And this is what we often do, especially with the Old Testament. It was called moralizing it. We say there are good guys, and there are bad guys. God loves the good guys. God hates the bad guys. The good guys go on the boat. The bad guys go swimming. 
Right? And so, therefore, what? Be good. Therefore, be good. And this is what we, be like Noah. Be good like Noah and you get on the boat. And I'm telling you, friends, that is not Christianity. That is not our faith. The Bible tells us we're all bad guys and there's one good guy named Jesus Christ. You better trust him. You better seek his favor. Noah, by the way, Noah's not a good guy. Genesis 6-5 applies to Noah as well. We get to Genesis 9, Noah's going to pass out drunk naked. He's a sinful man like me and you. But he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor is often translated as grace. Some of you have the King James this morning. That's how it translates. But Noah found grace. See, he's just a regular sinful guy. Yells at his wife, gets drunk, prideful, lustful, greedy. And what does he get? He gets grace. You notice it says here very clearly in verse 8, he found grace. He did not earn favor. He did not merit favor. It's almost as if favor came looking for him. That favor found him. You see, God's answer to man's wickedness is not, hey, I'm going to find some good guys. God's answer to man's wickedness is let me give grace. And somehow we got this idea in the church that God looks down from heaven and says, you're all terrible, but there's a group here in this room, Hamilton Baptist Church. I really like them. Those are the good guys. I want, I want them. I'm going to be nice to them. That's not, that's not what scripture teaches. God looks and says, we're, we're all evil. We're all wicked. We all the, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are only evil all the time, and that's for all of us. And God says, they're all wicked, but I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to give grace to you. It happened to Abraham, who's a pagan in the land of Ur. It happened to Jacob, who was a thief and a liar and thought only of himself. It happened to Paul, who was a murderer and a blasphemer. They found God's grace. It happened to you, Christian. It happened to me. God does not look down from heaven and say, wow, I could really use you. It's not like Virginia Tech saying, I, we need some players here. Come on my team. God looks down and says, you're all losers. All you do is sin all the time. You're terrible. Would you like grace? There was a 17-year-old kid in California who all he was doing was thinking of himself, just sinning, just sinning. Care less about God. I hated him. He said, would you like grace? Yes, please. Yeah, I would like some grace. Would you like me to forgive you? Would you like me to give you eternal life? Would you like me to love you? Would you like me to lead you? Would you like me to change you? I said, yes, please. I would like that very much. He got grace. Noah got grace. You see, God likes glory, doesn't he? He likes his glory. And so he picks pathetic people so it's clear who gets, who's doing the job. Right? That's how I got this job. Right? I'm aware of that. That God wants his glory. I would have it no other way. Every other religion in this world says there's good guys, bad guys. God loves the good guy. Go be a good guy. Christianity denies that. And somehow non-Christians, therefore, um, have, have this wrong understanding. They think that Christians think we're better than them. And so let's just be clear. We're not better than them. 
The only reason that you and I may obey God better than we used to is because God has been gracious to us. We, we didn't earn that. We just gave us grace and he began to change us. It's, it's like we won the lotto and we didn't even buy the ticket. It was just one day God says, boom, here he is. I love you. Grace, trust me, follow me, and I'm just going to bless you. Has anybody here experienced grace? Anyone got God's grace this morning? He's given you grace, Christian. Last night I gathered my family together for, for worship and my, my children, we all prayed to a gracious God and as we on the couch and I thought, God, you are so gracious and I tucked a, a house full of kids in and I thought, God is gracious and I woke up this morning while it was still dark and I looked at my bed and there was a beautiful woman in it and I thought, God, it was my wife by the way and I, I, I said, God, God is gracious, God is gracious and I, and I get to come here today and stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers in Christ who love me and I love them because God is gracious and I get to worship a God who I once hated because God has given me grace and he gave you grace and he gave Noah, our brother, grace. Noah found favor. By the way, it was not easy for God to do this. Jesus would die so Noah could get grace and I can get grace and live forever. Jesus said, do you want to give me your sin and I'll pay for it? for you. Can I pick up the tab on this? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, please. Will you pay for my sin? Because I can't do it. And Jesus paid it all. You see, our message to the world is not we are better than you. Our message to the world is not you're a bunch of perverts and we got the right way. Our message to the world is not you're a bunch of illegals and we're legal. Our message to the world is not, it's not you've messed up and we got our act together. Our message is that, listen, we messed up too. We got grace. Would you like grace? That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's what Noah got. Did that grace change him? Yes. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Righteous, blameless, walked with God. Let me ask you, what came first, grace or obedience? You see that? Verse 8, grace. Does grace impact us? Does it change us? Yes. Does it make us perfect? No. Noah's not perfect, but he's growing We're becoming more aware of sin. We're wanting to follow Jesus. We long to worship him more. We long to seek after him. It begins to change us. God begins to work in our lives. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest no man boast. It's all grace. And then he says, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good deeds. So you get grace, saved, and the result is righteousness and good deeds. And so God gives Noah grace. He pours it out on him. He says, I'm taking you and your family as mine. And so then what does he do? Flood the earth? All right, we're done. Let's go, Noah. No. Then he waits. For God is patient. Look in verse 3. I told you we'd get back to here. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred in 20 years. Two interpretations to this verse. Number one is that God is going to shorten the length in which you live to 120 years. Up to this point, people have been living 900, 700 years. And so he says, okay, no more. You only get to live 120 years. And so it's almost as if there's two judgments, one being the flood, the other upon those who survive the flood don't get to live long. I don't believe that's what this verse is teaching. 
the problem is, is that generations after Noah lived for 400 years and 400 years and it keeps going on. And then it certainly does decrease, but even Abraham lives almost 200 years. And so I don't see how that interpretation fits. What I believe is happening here is that God says, I'm going to flood the world, but I'm not going to do it next week or next year. In fact, I'm going to wait 120 years because I want to give people a chance to repent. Because God is patient and God is long-suffering. 1 Peter 3.20 says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. I'll give you 120 years. I'm going to send this guy out with a hammer. He's going to build a boat. It's going to take him over a century. Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So when he's not swinging a hammer, he's proclaiming the gospel. Repent. Judgment is coming. Get on the boat. Grab some wood. Grab a hammer. Let's get this thing done because judgment is coming. And God waits. And God waits. And God waits. God waits year after year, giving them more and more opportunities to repent. When I read this, I'm reminded of a story I once heard that, that occurred about a century ago in Scotland. There was a traveling uh, atheist who would debate Christians in the churches of Scotland. And he was very famous and people loved to hear him. And he would uh, stand in, in Christian pulpits and he would give this incredibly blasphemous talk, but it was full of humor. And he was very effective. He even got Christians just laughing against their will, if you will, at his blasphemy. He's a very persuasive man. And then when he was done with his blasphemy, he would reach into his vest pocket and pull out a pocket watch and open it. And he says, okay, my talk is done. done. I'm now going to give God three minutes to strike me down for my blasphemy. And he would take his pocket watch and he would lay it over the pulpit. And there it would just be open there. And he would wait for three minutes, which is a really long time for a whole bunch of people just to be silent. And the, the accounts was the tension just builds and people became light, light, uh, lightheaded and they're just waiting for God to strike him down. And three minutes was up, he would take his watch and close it and he would look at his congregation after a pregnant pause saying, there is no God. And go and sit down. He had quite a successful career in doing this until one, one day he went into an old rural church that had an elderly pastor, not well educated, But once that man sat down, this elderly pastor rose to the pulpit, shaking his head, and he simply said, does my esteemed colleague really think that he can exhaust the patience of God in three minutes? See, God is patient. He didn't strike him down because he's long-suffering. The point here in this scripture is that God waits for repentance. He gives opportunities for repentance. God continues to wait, doesn't he? We live in the days like Noah, that God has promised judgment and now he's waiting. It's been thousands of years that God has been waiting. Some think he's slow. Peter says he's not slow. Rather, he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Today, we see the patience of God upon a sinful world. I don't know about you, but I look around, I watch the news, and there's part of me that says, okay, what are you waiting for? How bad does it need to get? See, God's a lot more patient than I am. He's a lot more willing to suffer long with sinful people. He gives them opportunities Warnings. There was a, years ago, a National Geographic magazine showed uh, color pictures of what it, was, would, what it was like in that day of destruction in the cities of Pompeii in 79 AD when Mount Vesuvius exploded. 
In fact, it exploded so sudden that people died in, in their routines of life. Servants were out in the fields. Uh, people were making meals. The rich were in their baths. And they breathed in this superheated air and they died instantly. And then they were covered with ash later to be discovered centuries afterwards. What was interesting about the article is that they have discovered ancient writings that verified that the Romans knew an eruption was coming. They said there were weeks of rumblings and tremors before the actual eruption, even plumes of smoke. There's warning after warning, but they did nothing with those warnings. And people in Noah's day had their warning. He built the ark before them generation after generation. He preached to them when they were not building and no one repented. And I think about our day. And so let me just be very clear. I've, hopefully I have been, but there is a day of judgment coming. Christ will return and he will judge this world. And, to, and we continue to, to live like the people of Pompeii, like the people in Noah's day, with, with no heeding of that. One day Christ will return and people will be driving to work and making dinner and sleeping in their beds or watching television, even preaching a sermon. And Christ will return. And on that day, repentance will be too late. Judgment will come. The door will be shut. The opportunity will be over. I don't know what that day is. None of us do. Only God does. The Bible tells us in Acts 17 that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So not knowing what that day is, I will tell you, based upon the authority of God's word as we end this morning, that today, this very moment, is an opportunity of repentance. This very moment, you and I are experiencing the patience of God to all our non-Christian brothers and sisters. And I hope that you will not mistake God's patience with indifference. That he is coming a day to execute wrath, to execute judgment. Today you may repent. If you're a non-Christian here, I tell you this not to scare you. I tell it because I love you. Because the word of God tells me so. I will tell you that if you would simply lay down your arms of rebellion, bow your knee to King Jesus, believing that he died for your sins and rose from the grave and is returning one day, he will offer you full amnesty, full forgiveness, eternal life, a welcome into his family. You may do so today. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, challenging passages that we are forced to look at things in which perhaps we would rather not consider because they are true and they are good for us. And the fact that, to be honest, Lord, that I don't want to preach them is, is more indication of what's wrong with me. I thank you that you are just... I think we all like justice. We all like wrongs being righted. But we thank you even more that you are merciful. And that we have received mercy. We have received grace and favor over and over and over again. And so please, will you help that? Help us to recognize that, that we may follow you well and worship you well. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, myself included. Will you help us, in light of the grace we received, understand the grief that our sin brings upon you? May we not flirt with it and play with it and pat it on the head as if it were no big deal. 
May we desire not to grieve you, but to bring you great joy in our obedience and submission. For we know in submission is our place of joy and delight. Will you please help us? God, I need help to overcome this sin in my life. My brothers and sisters need help. Will you please use us to help one another as we live as your people, your church? And we pray for our friend here this morning that perhaps has not given their life to you for one reason or another. Please let them know of our great love for them, that we do not stand in judgment, but we do understand that you do. We pray that you would help them to surrender their life to King Jesus, place faith and love in their hearts for him, that they may receive the joy of salvation that we all have experienced. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.